You're listening to Seattle Grove Podcast, available free on iTunes. Welcome back to another episode of Seattle Growth Podcast, Season 6, which is focused on finding community in a dynamic city. I'm Jeff Schulman, a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business. And in today's episode, you will learn party-pleasing facts about eco-friendly building materials and about some of Seattle's aviation history. You'll also get insight into how to find and make contributions to a community that sparks your passion. And that community just might be one described in this episode. I sit down with Gabrielle Gerhard, who moved to Seattle in the 90s and has dived into a variety of community-building endeavors. Notably, she speaks to her work with Magnuson Park and in Northeast Seattle. She shares some interesting facts about the history of Magnuson Park that you won't want to miss. And then I sit down with Laura Elfline, a Seattle native who has done significant work with the Northwest Eco Building Guild. She gives valuable lessons to anyone who is trying to keep a community motivated to work together. In this interview, we take a slight detour to geek out a bit on the latest eco-friendly building materials and how to find them. So whether you have lived here your whole life or are just joining this city, these interviews give insight into the soul of Seattle and just might help you find a community that's right for you. Before we get to the first interview, I want to thank you for all your support. Your continued curiosity in the past, present, and future of Seattle has motivated me to keep this podcast going through six seasons. Through this podcast, I learned of the rich history of Seattle's Central District that is in danger of becoming history forever. I wanted to take others on the same journey of learning about this important part of Seattle's history, and so I teamed up with talented filmmaker Stephen Fong to create a feature-length documentary, On the Brink. The response to the film has exceeded our wildest expectations. We've sold out the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute. We've sold out the Northwest African American Museum. And now we are on pace to fill the Neptune Theater when On the Brink plays on August 15th as part of Seattle Theater Group's Nights at the Neptune program. Also, On the Brink is taking Seattle's story national, with screenings planned in Los Angeles, Chicago, and Columbus, Ohio. The success of the film was only made possible because of you, the Seattle Growth Podcast listeners, and the guests who are willing to share diverse perspectives with me have given me the energy to learn and share where Seattle has been, where it is, and where it is going. If you haven't seen the film yet, please go to www.onthebrinkmovie.com to find screenings. If you have seen the film, please help us spread the word and continue to find community partners to make the film available to the public. Share www.onthebrinkmovie.com with family and friends. Now, join me as I sit down with Gabrielle Gerhard. I am here with Gabrielle Gerhard. Uh, she teaches research and writing at Seattle Central College, uh, but that's not all. She is very involved in the Seattle community, currently the chair of the Magnuson Park Advisory Committee, but also volunteering with uh, SPACE, the Sandpoints Arts and Cultural Exchange, and uh, helping with Magnuson Park. We're going to get to all of these, uh, but Gabrielle, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much for inviting me, Jeff. We're here to talk about finding community in a dynamic city, but I've got two unrelated questions first. What brought you to Seattle? 
Well, as you might know, uh, my husband got a job at the University of Washington, and I tell people I was dragged to Seattle kicking and screaming. Uh, I didn't want to leave the East Coast, um, but now we love it here. And when was this? This was in 1999. Okay, so 19... No, wait, 1996. 1996, Seattle has changed dramatically in your time here. What change in these last, this last boom, these last seven years or so, have you found most striking? When I think about uh, driving through South Lake Union, uh, maybe not right when we moved here, but later than that, when my husband would be looking for some little camera shop or some shop that sold parts for something, and you'd be driving around at South Lake Union, there'd be warehouses and camera stores and car parts places. And it had this very sort of industrial feel. And all of that is just gone, all those single-story and double-story buildings. And now it's like you're in a completely different place. And every so often, if you walk around down there, you'll happen on an old building. And you'll be like, oh, that's what I remember from down there. But that, to me, is some of the most visible change of what's happened in the city. And what's your emotional reaction to that visible change? Um I think it's good and bad. I think a lot of people, you know, since I'm not from Seattle, I don't um, so much have that emotional reaction of longing for the old Seattle. I'm used to places that change and grow, coming from uh, different places in New York State. Um, But I um, understand other people missing it and how it's changed dynamics of certain neighborhoods. Uh, But I also like it. I think it's vibrant. I think it brings lots of people into the city. Uh, I think it does change the culture, but I think it changes it in positive ways as well. So we're here to talk about finding community in a dynamic city. I listed a few, but why don't you go into a little bit more detail about the ways that you're connecting with people and building the community around you? So when we first moved here, our community was pretty limited. It was our relatives that lived on the east side, and we were really glad when we moved here that Uh, We had them um, as a place to begin building our own community. That was really important to us. And after that, um, like many parents, I started to find community in um, my daughter's school, you know, with parents and other kids and people that you knew through that. And slowly I worked my way out from there. I was also in school, but as a grad student, um, you sometimes find community and sometimes you find more isolation than you do community. That can be a a challenging dynamic. So I think I really started to find the most community when I started to volunteer both in my daughter's elementary and middle school and really connect some of my um, strengths of what I was interested in as a both as a professional and work that I'd done in the past doing a lot of events work. I really started to build community around people there and also um, being a more active volunteer in my neighborhood. Tell me about a little bit about the volunteer work you're doing then in your neighborhood. So I started getting involved in my um, community organization right in my community in Northeast Seattle. And from there, I got involved with the Northeast District Council, which is the district council structure. There used to be 13 of them that kind of made up the neighborhood organizations in the city. And I was chair of that for a while, and I really enjoyed that as a way to connect with people and to keep people informed about things that were going on in the community and trying to build relationships across neighbors and neighborhoods. 
Now, is that the council that Mayor Murray had disbanded those? It is the council that Mayor Murray disbanded, good memory. Uh, yes, um, that was a very uh, interesting time. They really weren't disbanded. What happened was the uh, formal support from the Department of Neighborhoods was removed from the councils. So prior to that, we had had um, some different people. Usually it was Karen Coe who worked with the Department of Neighborhoods, who a lot of uh, Northeast Seattle old timers know and uh, greatly respect. And she had been um, in part, part of her job was to support the Northeast District Council. And she would do that by helping us know um, speakers maybe from the city or the community that we should bring in, helping us organize our agenda, um, keeping us on target with our meetings and some of our other things that we did. And so, yes, that was the Northeast District Council. And when that um, formal relationship with the city was ended by Mayor Murray, um, there was a lot of debate about what would happen to the councils and how they would go on. I think that process is still evolving. And now you're devoting a lot of your time. So you're you're teaching the next generation there at Seattle Central College, but then outside of that, you're you're doing these community building events like or uh, community building activities like supporting Magnuson Park Advisory Committee as the chair of it, uh, supporting the Sandpoint Arts and Cultural Exchange. What are you getting out of? doing that? What's going through your head when you're saying, let me sign up for the fifth or sixth way to help out the community? Yeah, sometimes I wonder exactly why, why I commit to things. Um, but I like being involved. One of the things I found out when I was first involved with the Northeast District Council was um, just being involved and go to going to meetings, both of NEDC and then uh, the City Neighborhood Council, which was CNC, CNC was you got information that you didn't hear in other places. Being in a room with people face to face, you really got an understanding of some of what was going on in different communities. I would hear about West Seattle or I would hear about changes in the Ballard neighborhood that I might not have heard about otherwise, that I might not have been on email listservs for, I might not have gotten information through the newspaper. Uh, and so then I started to get really um, interested in those organizations as a way to share information for people. Um, yes, there are good ways to make change, but people can't really make change if they don't have a way to access that information. And I know the city's argument at um, some points in time had been, oh, we'll put all this information online, we'll put it all on Facebook, we'll do it other ways. Um, but those all seem to have their uh, limitations as a way to share information. So some of my interest in getting involved in volunteering was really to um, both get information and share information with my neighbors. And with the city changing so dramatically in these last seven years, how has that affected what you're doing to come together with your neighborhood to, to try to change the, the path of the future? You know, with so much change happening around you, how has that affected your efforts to change your local area of control? I, th I think it is a challenge because, you know, some of the city's arguments around changing the district councils were that they represented a less diverse group of people than they would have liked to be involved in different aspects of uh, informing the city's processes and businesses. Um, and I, I think there was validity to that. It is hard as the city changes, as younger people move in, as there's, um, I'll use the word, 
transient, not in a negative way, but as new people move in and then maybe they move to a different neighborhood or they come from somewhere else, it takes them a little time to find their find their way in Seattle. Um, that uh, affects how you can reach out to people. Um, and I, I do think it is it is really a challenge to, to try to do that. If somebody listening is one of those people who've just, mo- just moved to Seattle, maybe bought a home uh, in your neighborhood or a neighborhood like that, and they're just feeling that they, they're not connected yet to their community and their surroundings, is there anything that you've learned from your experience that might help them feel like they belong here in Seattle? Well, if someone had moved into, um, you know, a house or an apartment, um, not necessarily have to be a homeowner, I think it's great to connect with your neighbors, both um, physically and virtually. So finding out what the neighborhood group in your area is, uh, whether it's like the Ravenna, you know, Bryant Community Council, Community Association, or uh, another group like that. And um, finding a way to connect with them. And then also just meeting your neighbors. And the, a lot of these um, neighborhood organizations both have emails or blogs, way f- for people to communicate. And then also we'll have an event or a meeting. And that becomes a really good way to start to build relationships. I know a lot of people now rely on Nextdoor, which I call Facebook for Neighbors, uh, as a way to share information. I think that can be a great way to share information. Um, but not everybody's on there, um, and that just becomes one one way to get information. I think kind of connecting directly with the community association is also a good way to do that. And what would be the first steps? So maybe they're not in your neighborhood, and they're just wondering, how do I start to connect with my neighbors? What 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 have you learned from your efforts that that could help them make those first steps? Well, I, it's funny. People um, laugh at me. I had a neighbor who had been uh, in the neighborhood about maybe 15 years ago, and we had a party at our house, and we invited a bunch of people over, and I was introducing them to all the people in the neighborhood, and he said, well, how do you know all these people? I said, oh, that's my job. I wander around. I take a walk every day. I meet everybody in the neighborhood, and I like to, you know, I like to talk to people, and so I think that, that that face-to-face is always a good a good way to start. And then from there, uh, as I said, you could um, go online, look for the neighborhood organization that um, kind of is over your geographic area or connect with one of the district councils and find out what organization um, would be a way to connect in your neighborhood. There's also smaller groups like activities that I know you've done in the park and other ways to connect with people. Or another way that I've started to get involved in some things is just getting involved with alumni organizations. And so most people who move here, there might be an alumni organization from a school that they're in, and that would be a way for them to connect with people that they might automatically have something in common with. Now, let's go back to what you said about these neighborhood groups that the people can join that could be pretty intimidating i imagine especially when you're looking at you know if some of them are homeowners and they've owned for 10 15 20 years and, and they know each other all that that time uh does do some of your groups that you're a part of like the magnuson park advisory committee or sandpoint arts and cultural exchange are they, are they welcoming to new people and and how do you help somebody new feel what you felt when you've been there and with these people for for years Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I have found that in Seattle, there's a lot of neighborhoods that do the night out event. 
Um, and that's usually the first Tuesday in August, which now is also our primary night here in Seattle So for city council and other things. So there's a little bit of overlap there. But that can be a great way to physically meet people because there's so many neighborhood events that go on. Um, it can be a little intimidating. I find most groups are very welcoming to new people. Um, but occasionally there are groups that they're not just not welcoming. Um, it's not that they're not welcoming, but maybe there's a lot of backstory behind every interaction that people have around particular topics. But most groups are pretty, pretty welcoming and opening to people. Um, again, I, I mentioned the night out. I think that's a great way to begin to get involved in the neighborhood. You are involved in a lot of things, volunteering, also uh educating the next generation at Seattle Central College. I want to give you a chance to plug something. So if somebody is listening, uh, who define who should get involved in what? Uh, give a plug here. I'll give a plug. Okay, so uh, one of my plugs would be for going out to see things in the community. And, you know, sometimes we get home, we don't want to go out to something, we don't want to go to whatever event it is. But I uh, live by Magnuson Park, and there's so many great things going on in the park. Uh, we have the gallery there, the space gallery, and now we have a radio station, as you know, in the park. And there's so many events and activities that go on the park on a regular basis. So I think finding out what's already available and going out and getting involved in that is is a great way to to start getting involved. All right. So I teach marketing. And one thing is you've <laughs> got to give a, define the target market. So somebody right. could say, oh, that's me. I right. should do that. And that's the solution that I would want. So who should try to learn more about Magnuson Park and what are they going to get out of learning more about what's going on there? Yep. Magnuson Park has a fascinating history. And I, I'll give thanks to some of my great neighbors and specifically Lynn Ferguson for um, some of the work she's done around getting part of the park designated as a historic district. Um, and it, it has so many uh, interesting things that have gone on in the park that people don't really know anything about, including the first flight around the world originating from Magnuson Park almost 100 years ago now with uh, four uh, military planes. And I think there were four or eight pilots that all went out together. And two of the planes apparently came back and most of the pilots. Um, and, a little uh, history lesson here I on Seattle Growth history. Podcast. And uh, so uh, parks, especially a park like Magnuson, has tons of uh, great history and tons of way to get involved. But you're right. It's very hard to market that out to people. People don't always know what's going on. In, in those areas. Uh, so it is a challenge to try to bring new people in. There's so much that goes on in Magnuson Park, and I've learned so much about that through my involvement with the Magnuson Park Advisory Committee, which is a, a great uh, committee appointed by the superintendent of parks to advise him on matters related to the park. And that's a committee that brings so many different people to the table. We have the arts representative. We have representatives of nature and of um, the environment and, you know, some of the different tenants that are there and uh, the different uh, property owners that are uh, adjacent and in the park. Uh, and so that's a that's a great way to learn um, more, has been a great way for me to have learned more about the park. All right, so Magnuson Park is northeast Seattle. It's mm -hmm. where the old base used to be. It used to be a military base, right? It had quite a 
quite a great history as a military base. And if you drive along Sandpoint Way, you see that large building there that's still being renovated, which was the barracks. And uh, that building is so tall that apparently if you stood it on its side, it would be as tall as the Space Needle. And it's being renovated now by uh, Mercy Housing. And uh, there's actually people that have already moved into the first half there. Yeah, so a, a lot of history in that area. And one other cool fact for us, now that we know it's where the first flight around the world <laughs> came right out of our backyard here in Magnuson Park in Seattle. Any other cool history facts? I do have a note that it was Seattle's first airport. And uh, when they were turning uh, that property over, it was turned over uh, in a couple of waves, to, mostly to the city of Seattle. They were considering actually keeping it as an airport. So we would have had an airport right there in our backyard if that decision had been made. But they decided not to do that. Magnuson Park, if you like art, there's art walks, you're saying? There, there, is, there are art walks, actually. There's quite a bit of public art in Magnuson Park. And then there is the Space Gallery, uh, Sandpoint Arts and Cultural Exchange, that has a revolving exhibit about every six weeks. We have a fabulous exhibit going on there right now. Uh, and then there are a lot of nature activities. There's a lot of people who volunteer there, uh, digging out invasive species, uh, putting in uh, new plants, picking up garbage, uh, lots of different things that go on there to improve the park. So if you like art, if you like meeting people, if you like taking your children to the playground, or if you like nature, uh, you could head to Magnuson Park. And how could they learn about the events calendar that you speak of, the various events that happen? Where can they find that? Uh, some of those are online at the Seattle uh, Parks and Rec website. Some of those events are um, on the calendar. And uh, Space has its own website, and a lot of our events and art exhibits are posted there as well. Space at Magnuson.org. Not like we use it in the email where it's right, a little at right, sign, right. but it's space at. Magnuson.org if and, you want to learn more about what's yeah, going on there. Right. And I should add, there's so many other organizations in the park. There's lots of nonprofits. There's Sales Sandpoint. There's the YMCA. There's so many other organizations that are in the park. Um, we now have a, have a brewery and restaurant at the north end of the park. So there's always something interesting going on there. So I really recommend it as a destination. What can somebody who's listening learn from your experience being in Seattle since the mid-90s and just throwing yourself into making the, the people and places around you a little bit better, uh, what can people learn from your experiences? I think uh, one of the things I did was volunteer a lot right in North, Northeast Seattle. Uh, I've also tried to do some volunteering now that um, has not been located in North Seattle, Northeast Seattle. So I think uh, that's one thing to consider. Do you want to kind of do the same things with some of the same volunteers that are involved, or do you want to stretch and maybe be in some different location? So that would be one thing that I would suggest considering that geographically. And I think also have a goal of what kind of volunteering do you want to do? Are you interested in the kind of volunteering where someone says, show up at two o'clock and you'll do this for two hours and then you're done? Or do you want to be trying to build towards um, more involvement in terms of work on longer-term projects and other things. And so that's something I've had to try to find a balance for, for myself. And what do you, what's the trade-offs in your mind? What are the trade-offs? Between like the pop-in, do two hours, you're done, versus the long run. Well, I think, I think both of those are great, actually, because um, sometimes you want to help out an organization, but you want to just be able to 
you know, do it. You don't want to have to think about it, have a lot of emails. You don't want to plan it. You just want to be able to stop in and help and help move something forward and then kind of have it off your plate. Um, but being involved at a different level where you're involved for a longer period of time, you can help um, watch an organization grow, like my involvement with Space and the Radio Station, where I'm just one part of what's gone on there, but I'm able to um, be involved over a longer time. I, I find that very rewarding as well. All right. So we've talked about um, the ver- uh, several of the organizations that you're giving your time to. We've talked about making friends with neighbors just by being there and then Seattle Night Out, which is the first Tuesday in August. Um, Just get out there and see who else is there. Um, And this is all about building community in a dynamic city. Any concluding thoughts that you'd like to share with the listener? Um, I think it's interesting to see where um, you can find community. You know, I like to, I really like to know my neighbors. I said that before. But I also will find unexpected connections when I go to events and meet new people. And um, I really enjoy that process. So that is something I would suggest to people, especially you talked about new people coming to the city, uh, finding a way that beyond their work and their friends that they can um, get involved in some organization that they're they're interested in, either a local organization or some of the many other, you know, national organizations that we have branches of here in Seattle. Gabrielle, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. Great. Thank you very much. My next guest offers valuable lessons for those looking to motivate a community, while also offering some interesting facts about eco-friendly building materials. But before we get to the interview, if you have not seen my new documentary, On the Brink, please pause this podcast. It'll be here when you come back. And head to www.onthebrinkmovie.com slash screenings to register to see the film on August 15th at the Neptune Theater. This is a rare chance to see the film for free, courtesy of Seattle Theater Group's Nights at the Neptune, a people's theater joint. Even though you have a chance to see it free thanks to Seattle Theater Group, you will still need to register for your ticket in advance at www.onthebrinkmovie.com screenings. As written in Crosscut, the history lesson here is one all Seattleites would benefit from learning. I want to see you there on August 15th. And now, join me as I sit down with Laura Elfline. I'm here with Laura Elfline. She is bringing together builders as part of the Eco Building Guild. Uh, we're going to get learn all about how she's building community and why in just a moment. But Laura, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. I'm going to want to know all about the Eco Building Guild. But first, what brought you to Seattle? Actually, I'm a Seattle area native. I have grown and bred here. Uh, my great-grandfather actually brought his son and my dad out, um, his grandson, out from Chicago back in like the 40s. And so we've been here since. So you, you've been here your whole life. Yep. Uh, and tell me about the changes in the last seven years, uh, which kind of inspired this podcast. What have you found most striking in this boom You've been here for several booms. Yes. What's different or what's most striking about the current boom that we're in? I think at how quickly it's ex- escalated. Um, I think that land prices are escalating at a quicker rate, which is creating all sorts of impacts. Um, the building industry in itself has shifted a lot since the recession happened. 
a lot of people got out of the building industry. And so we have a lot fewer people to build these days, which is uh, spiraling the impacts, um, as well as just general costs have gone, gone up so much that that all impacts housing and then this lack of homes for folks, the underhoused and homelessness itself. And so we, we've got to get to the Eco Building Guild. But mm -hmm. first, since you've just said, you know, people have gotten out of the building industry in this mm -hmm. recession, what could we learn from that kind of boom, bust, then super boom cycle that we should be paying attention to during this boom or when the next bust happens? You know, I think it's a combination of things that caused people to get out of the building industry. Um, one of them was that there weren't jobs. And so if you were 23, 24 years old, just getting your feet wet in the building industry and not finding jobs, then you're going to go look to a new, new industry and just shift gears entirely. And those are the folks that haven't come back. And they would be our mid-level carpenters, our seasoned folks, but not super seasoned. Um, so some of the most productive of, of what um, a lot of the, especially the home builders look for. Um, so there's that piece. And then there's also this piece about um, higher education and people being pushed into that directly out of high school all the time, regardless if that's really where their passions lie. And so then they rack up all this debt. And then you have the housing costs on top of that. And so it makes it really hard for them to come back to an industry that isn't a dot-com industry, that isn't um, you know, a doctorate or a lawyer-level industry where the pay isn't um, equal with those things. Now let's talk about this eco-building guild where you're bringing together builders that mm -hmm. have stuck around. Uh, yeah. What is it? Who is it? Uh, how long has it been? Tell me all about the eco-building guild. The Northwest Eco-Building Guild has been around for about 25 years. It was started off as a small group of builders who had this common interest in building differently and building with a more healthful mindset, both for the planet and the people occupying the homes. And um, they would meet at the basement of Finney Ridge Neighborhood Center and just have these conversations. And one of the things that developed um, out of that was a lot of levels of cooperation is what that's sort of been termed, the idea of sharing trade secrets and helping each other discover new ways of doing things better um, that are more helpful. That has grown in lots of different ways. We have um, regional chapters all over the Northwest. Um, right now, they exist in Seattle in a cooperation in Bellingham, Olympia, and Portland. And then the, the, the baseline has always been meeting on a regular basis to discuss new ideas and to learn about new products and techniques and the whys of why we do what we do and, and balance those all that out. Over the last 10 years, that's really developed into some really um, high-profile events like the Northwest Green Home Tour, um, which started in Olympia, stopped, started in Seattle, and has really grown, and now it includes Olympia and Tacoma, and we're hoping Portland's again in the near future. Tell me a little bit first about this tour, because I think mm -hmm. that's what you're responsible for now, right? I am chair of the Seattle um, Green Home Tour, and as well as a few other <laughs> few other hats that I wear with the guild. Um, but the Green Home Tour happens once a year in the spring, and it's free to the general public, and people are invited to come into 
newly completed homes by builders or architects that are hosting them on the home and or on the tour. And um, they can come in and learn about the different components um, that make that home a, a green home. And some of those homes have lighter green touches as, or at least as considered by some of the professionals in the industry, but are still new ideas to some of the homeowners and, and students that come out on that tour. Um, and then some homes are really deep green and sort of avant-garde and really pushing the envelope on the newest technologies and, and techniques. And so talk about these whys. You know, you come together around a common vision in this eco-building, Northwest Eco-Building Guild. What is that common vision and, and what are the whys that are motivating you and your peers to meet? It's twofold. It's really from this baseline purpose of doing things better in a healthful way. Like that's really important. And there's been so much about building industry that's resulted in unhealthful practices inside your home. And because you're inside your home for more hours than you're really anywhere else, um, it can be a huge impact on your personal health as well as it's impacting the health of the environment. The additional piece is really around climate change and really reducing our energy consumption and our um, carbon footprint so that we can continue to enjoy this planet for more than another 30 years. And we're going to talk about how this common purpose has built a sense of community among the mm -hmm. people who are involved. But first, let's geek out a little bit. What are some of the cool technologies that, that you're learning about and seeing on these tours? Um, they range quite substantially. Um, and, you know, in addition to the tours, we have the Green Building Slam and Summit that happens in the fall. And the Slam has... Uh, sort of a TED Talks-like piece to it. And then the second day is more about workshops on how to do things or what the result of doing certain techniques was in, in a project. Um, but I think some of the uh, some of the things that we love um, would include sheep's wool insulation. It's um, an in easy solution. It's a little more expensive sometimes a lot more expensive on a project, but it really um, does so many things for the home. It helps the home be healthier. It's mold resistant. It actually sequesters some of the toxins in it. It keeps moisture at bay. It um, isn't hard on the environment in its production and its distribution. So all the different pieces that you look at for reducing your carbon footprint, it hits all of them which is a lovely thing. Um, the, one of the other things that um, we like to look at in my company, Mighty House Construction, is, is really looking at some of the um, hybrid heating solutions that are available. We don't need to do furnaces anymore, which is sort of a really old school way of distributing heat. We have ductless heat pumps. We have infrared heat solutions. And mixing those together and matching them up to be a simple system that works really effectively and efficiently is much better solution than the old school furnace solutions. And now you've got sheep's wool for insulation, getting rid of furnaces. So these are kind of out of the box, new solutions, and they might help the environment, but are they affordable yet? Or are they, are they kind of for the fringe for only the kind of people who care a lot about climate change and the environment? It really depends on the, the thing that you're asking about. Sheep's wool insulation is definitely a little bit more expensive. It's like buying the top-of-the-line comfortable shoes that you know are going to last you. 
for the next 20, 30 years versus going down to Payless and throwing in the pink insulation stuff. You know, Payless shoes is sort of more equivalent to that pink insulation you can pick up at Home Depot. Um, so when you compare those things you're, and you're looking at the life of your home and the life of the occupants, it does pencil out. Um, the heating solutions are definitely affordable. You can do a hybrid heating solution of ductless heat pumps and infrared heat solutions that are um, in a new system going to cost the same as installing a whole new furnace system. So those are definitely more about just knowing a better way than what the old school way was. And there's lots of different pieces along those lines. You know, a lot of people think that green building is more expensive, and then they'll say things to their contractor about getting this fancy marble. Well, sure, you can get the fancy marble, and sure, you can get the fancy green building solutions, or you can be more practical on all of it, right? So I think a lot of the green building solutions are very practical solutions, too, that are just good quality and are going to last the consumer. So through Mighty House Construction and the Eco Building Guild, are any of these solutions available to people remodeling their home, or is this primarily uh, helping build greener homes? Home Depot doesn't really offer, or Lowe's don't really necessarily offer green building solutions. Um, they offer some things that feel like green building solutions sometimes, but they're only part of the story. Green Home Solutions over in Ballard and Queen Anne area is a great resource for finding actual green building products to use in your home. If you're a DIY person, they do carry the sheep's wool insulation. Um, and then um, a lot of the other solutions are available. You just have to know about it. So sometimes um, we'll have consumers consult with my company uh, to sort of get the best practices that we would put into a home if if um, we were doing it. So somebody's remodeling their home and, and they call a company uh, contractor, whether it's Mighty House Construction, your company, or or somebody else's, and not a part of this community that that you're helping to grow and expand, but they they want to do something to make their home greener and maybe even more efficient uh, and healthier for their family. What is something that they could do, not in a brand new house, but in a, one of these houses that already exist? And they just want to freshen it up. Yeah, so many things. I think one of the big things uh, for health in a home is uh, getting rid of your wall-to-wall carpeting. That's a big contributor to lots of breathing um, problems that folks have. A lot of um, toxins and um, allergens are contained in carpeting. And uh, so a lot of folks are switching out to hard surface flooring instead and there's a plethora of really great products on the marketplace that don't have formaldehyde, that aren't made with toxic materials, um, that will help contribute to a healthy home environment. Uh, cork is really super popular. Again, it can it's water resistant, it's stain resistant. Uh, they have it in all sorts of different colors and textures and um, uh, styles now instead of just the old school kind of corkboard look that people are really accustomed to. Um, Marmoleum is an old school linoleum product that's made of linseed oil and jute. And the color goes all the way through and you're not going to have the same problems that you have with vinyl flooring. It's a substitute for vinyl flooring. It's going to be a longer term solution. It's not going to get thin looking and stained and um, split at at a seam. It's not plied together. It's one thick sheet. Um, And all of those are available at Green Home Solutions as well as 
um, other other stores around the area too. You just need to be a little careful because sometimes it will look green, like vinyl plank flooring. <laughs> vinyl plank flooring actually talks about it's a green and healthy solution, um, but it's not. It's made out of petrol toxins and it's going to off gas in your home. And the reason they say it's green is because it's long lasting because it's made with horrible chemicals and um, that it has an aesthetic that you're looking for um, and that it's easy to clean. And those things are true, except that when it starts off gassing in your home, then it becomes a product that I'm not interested in using. Relative to wood flooring, is it more expensive or more sustainable, or it's or you're comparing it to synthetic flooring? Uh, I think cork is a great replacement for synthetic flooring for carpet. Um, it's um, it's actually really great as a second floor material for your second story because it's also sound absorption. And so a lot of times people want to put carpet on a second story to help um, that sound transfer going to the first floor. And cork does that same thing that, that carpet does. Um, what's nice about cork is it is totally renewable. It's the bark of a tree. It's not the tree itself. Um, some of the other products that you can find for hardwoods are... Um, salvaged fallen timber they're making into wood now uh, wood flooring now too so that's a great resource that gets pretty pricey in comparison to cork so sometimes cork's an easier avenue to get into so we're here to talk about finding community in a dynamic city and i we took a long tangent so i could geek out on and learning <laughs> about uh home building materials and, and how they could be um better for our children and for the environment uh talk about you know, bringing people together for this Green Homes tour. And I know you've got other roles there with the Eco Building Guild, mm -hmm. but why are you trying to bring people together? Well, it's something, the green building itself is something that I'm very passionate about. And so it's definitely fun for me personally to have community in it and be a part of the Eco Building Guild. Um, it's also, I find that even... Even people who totally dive deep into transportation issues and organic foods and cleaning solutions for their home, they don't have a clue when it comes to building. They don't, if you don't see it every day, it's really, and it's a technical thing. So it's really hard for the average consumer to um, absorb that information and understand how to, it translates into their home. It's easy to go traditional sourced broccoli or organic broccoli done you know but um when you talk about building materials it can be super confusing and um and so it's really important to get that information out there and we have a great community of builders and architects that are working and toiling every day to try to do better in this world and uh so educating the general public and getting other builders and architects excited and interested is just really important to our future. And so you've talked about this information sharing and the benefits of that. Have you found any benefits outside of actually your building business? Well, I think the more fun work is, the more you're willing to work. And so, you know, educating and and being proactive about green building is actually a lot of work. But when you have a community that you're doing with, 
doing it within, then it becomes a lot of fun work and makes it um, last longer. And can you talk, is there an accomplishment uh, in your work with the Eco Building Guild uh, that you could point to that you're most proud of or one of the most proud accomplishments that you've been able to do with this community? That I've personally been able to do with the community? Yeah. This is going to be unnatural for you because if you're a Seattleite, you don't want to take credit. (laughs) 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 Well, that and that we have these great teams, right? I think maybe the thing that I feel like... I can take a smidge of credit for, although I would have to give a major shout out to Doug Kennedy, who has been one of our longtime members, um, is that the Green Building Slam and Summit and the Green Home Tour have had a history of bringing back the same volunteers every year. And I think when leadership is not at its best, then volunteers don't want to come back and be part of that. So if I was to say anything about my particular role is is as a leader, that people are willing to continue to work with me. (laughs) And that feels good because the more more consistency we have on our teams, the easier it is to do the events. And that's what I really appreciate with the volunteers is that ease of just everybody knowing what they need to do and still putting off a new and engaging type of event year after year. And so your passion is healthy building for uh, healthy for the people living in it and healthy for the planet. Somebody else who's listening might have a different passion mm-hmm. and they're trying to build a community themselves, mm-hmm. uh, maybe around a different vision. What would you tell them? What can they learn from your experience getting the same volunteers year after year, getting this tour happening and people involved? What could somebody learn from your experience that they could translate to a different community that they're trying to build? I think one of the one of the key components is really learning about the organization and where it's been and where um, the community sees it going and um, helping it get there. And so I think there's a lot of structural pieces of that, things that aren't sexy or fun but really need a foundational level. It's like the concrete and structure of your home, right? Like there's nothing beautiful about it. It just needs to happen. And so I think with an organization, there's a lot of work that needs to go in there to help build the community because without that structure, the, the, the work can just sort of flounder and fall apart if, if other people uh, coming after you don't know why or what you did to make it happen. And so one of the... One of the things that we've done with um, the two major events is we've created these how-to guides. And it does not by any means say every minutia of detail that we put into these events, but it gives a lot of direction so that hopefully someone else wanting to um, do a green home tour in Olympia, for instance, can pick it up and produce an event more seamlessly than having to go through all the toil we went through for the first five years um, and having that kind of um, uh, resource for the community. Any other lessons uh, from your experience helping to bring these volunteers year after year um, that somebody else should take if they're going to try to build or expand a community? Um, I think finding what folks are good at and what they enjoy, how they enjoy participating is really important. Um, watching for signs that they're not having fun and finding the thing that does make them have fun. 
it's funny because my staff and uh, one of my staff was in the car with me yesterday and he's he asked me similar questions because <laughs> he's trying to help a, a nonprofit sort of gather together and build differently. Um, I think one of the hardest things about volunteerism in any organization is that the the people that come to that organization are there because they're passionate about the topic of that organization, whether that be music or art or green building or anything else. That does not necessarily translate to them being passionate about helping to finalize catering details or going out and finding the beer sponsor, which are a lot of the kinds of work that nonprofits need help with in putting on their events and um, or or man- wrangling a database. You know, those aren't the fun parts, but um, I think leading by example and um, showing that you're willing to, you know, being you're in that mix with them and how doing that work will result in the outcomes that they're all, we're all looking for and striving towards. Um, I think that's one of the things that helps keep people coming back for more. Are there any trends that you're noticing as it comes to kind of the efficiency or the consumption in the homes that are being built? One of the things that I've learned over looking at energy conservation and specifically is that while we have clearly increased the electrical consumption in our homes, like the need, the actual consumption hasn't increased as much as you would think it has. It's still at around like mid-80s levels. And that's because the federal government, at least up until recent times, has put such incredible pressures on the LED screen TVs, on the on the cell phone batteries and on all the different technologies that we're bringing in our homes as to not override our grid. And yet, like the things like solar isn't getting, you know, like it keeps getting these incentives and then threats of it being pulled and then back in the marketplace, but just a little bit. It's, it's all these scaled back things. And we had this great community power works program that now is also scaled back to essentially a few rebates that are really hard to get um, and actually are fairly um, monopolistic to get, as I recently saw, but that's another story. The Eco-Building Guild, lots of people coming together trying to share information and, and keep builders on a, on a certain track. Uh, you're just one of several people involved, but what do you hope the future holds for the community that you're a part of building? I mean, I, I would hope that there is learning opportunities in every city across our nation. I mean, we definitely live in a little bit of a bubble here in Seattle, and we do have a lot of green building that happens, and we do have some programs that have incentivized ener- energy efficiency and solar panels and so forth. And you don't have to go very far outside of Washington State or maybe even just to the eastern side of our state before you start not seeing those same kinds of attitudes and understanding around green building. And um, it can't, Washington and the Northwest and the few other communities around our country can't hold us all up and, and make the impact that needs to happen. It really needs to be countrywide. So I'd love to see Northwest Eco Building Guilds pop out all over the country. Now, you've talked about um, building community, the benefits for information sharing, the benefits to you personally. You've talked about 
some lessons you've learned as you've grown the community. And we took a nice, healthy tangent into geeking out on, on eco-building materials and, and what's happening there. Any concluding thoughts? I'd really love to see more um, government, both from city to federal levels, um, incentivizing energy efficient solutions and healthy solutions in homes. They do, they have traditionally done a lot regarding like TVs and stereo systems and cell phones and some of those gadgets that we like to have so that our energy consumption hasn't totally screwed up our electrical grid. Um, however, when it comes to these other technologies that impact our carbon footprints substantially and thus the health of our environment substantially for the long term, they've been really wishy-washy over the last 50 years. And we really need um, a program to help folks make those good decisions. Sometimes it's hard for people to make the choice of solar panels or those two vacations they had planned with their family. You know, they, they think, okay, well, but this is family time. I'll never get this back. Solar can wait oftentimes. And, and I'm not sure solar can wait or some of these other pro technologies and techniques that we have for our homes Laura, and our buildings. Thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. Thank you for having me, Jeff. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Now I want to hear from you. How are you building or finding community in this dynamic city? Who else do you want to hear from this season? Reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman, to let me know. Or come tell me in person at the next screening of On the Brink on August 15th at the Neptune Theater. Head to www.onthebrinkmovie.com screenings to get tickets. And don't just take it from me. The Stranger deemed it, and I quote, worth watching. And the Seattle Times hailed it as, quote, a cautionary tale, and a call to action. Go to www.onthebrinkmovie.com screenings to get tickets. Next week, we continue to look at finding community in a dynamic city. We are nearing the end of this season of Seattle Growth Podcast, so let me know if there's anyone else you wanted to hear from or if you have a perspective that you wanted to share. And before we close out this episode, I want to thank Pamela Burton for her help with the audio and Ed Cromer for his work on the UW Foster School of Business blog. I also want to thank the team at the UW News and Information Office, uh, notably Rebecca Gorley, Michelle Ma, and Victor Balta, and Peter Kelly, for helping to spread the word about Seattle Growth Podcast. And I want to acknowledge the voice you heard at the introduction of this episode. That was Naomi Washira, who appeared on Season 4 of Seattle Growth Podcast, which explored the past, present, and future of Seattle's music scene. She is playing at the Ballard Homestead on July 26th, and you can get tickets to her concert at NaomiWashira.com. I'm Jeff Shulman, and I thank you for joining me on this journey in the sixth season of Seattle Growth Podcast. <laughs>